Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. So today we are going to do the first of what I hope will be a number of different podcasts devoted to uh, unconventional ideas for responding to the coronavirus situation. Uh, obviously, this has been a very world-turning, upside-downing uh, situation in a number of different ways, and uh, it's a very difficult situation. And so I think creative thinking is worth considering. And so today uh, we have with us uh, Professor Robin Hansen, who's a professor of economics at George Mason University, uh, and who has, I would say, uh, perhaps not unique, but um, certainly uh, he has some unconventional ideas about you know what the appropriate way to respond to the situation is. And I think he was, if there are other people who share his uh, ideas, he was the first. <laughs> so. Uh, Robin, uh, first of all, welcome to the program. Uh, it's great to be here. Okay, and so and I, I should mention that I have a lot of unusual ideas in a lot of different areas. Well, that's, more my that's style, really. really. Yes, that, that is true. Uh, it, 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 I should also say that in addition to being a uh, professor, George Mason, you do blog at Overcoming Bias. Uh, I do. A blog. You've been doing that for a long, long time. Um, and this, you know... Uh, Occasionally, some of your unconventional ideas have have gotten you into, well, say they gotten into into trouble. I don't know if they got you into real trouble, but they've they generated controversy. Uh, as much trouble as it's possible to get a tenured professor into, let's say. Right. Yes. Yeah. Who have relatively safe jobs, thankfully. But yes, that's right. Although I have, just as an aside, I have noticed um, that while the tenure system is supposed to promote unconventional thinking, it seems to me that often. Uh, professors are more intellectually conformist than, than other people. I don't know. Uh, it's obviously not true of everybody, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, sometimes I will, I won't make you comment on that. There, uh, there's some truth to that. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so I, I think um, what would be a good way to proceed is first, uh, let's just talk a little bit about what your proposal is and some of the specifics and then we can get to some of the common objections and, and other problems that people have raised with the idea. So maybe right. you could lay out, yeah. So I actually have a, a number of alternative proposals in a lot of different areas. I'm just full of that, but you're probably talking about my focus on variolation. Yes. So the key situation we're facing is that there's a plan A and a plan B that we need. Plan A is the most hopeful plan for that you would like to achieve if you could, and that would be to suppress or contain this disease. Just, just keep it down so that not very many people get infected until we can get some strong cure like a vaccine in a couple of years. And many people are hoping for that. In fact, initially, the public health authorities seemed to be talking about, well, it was too late for that, and we just needed to, uh, what they call flatten the curve, mitigate, i.e. try to spread it out over time so it doesn't too bunch up too much all at one moment. And then a lot of people said, no, 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 we couldn't possibly accept that. We must try to suppress and contain. And so that 
lip service went to talking about suppressing and containing, although I think a lot of experts don't really believe that that's going to happen. But uh, there is a substantial chance that we won't succeed at suppressing and containing, and that over the next two years, basically, most of the world will get exposed and a large fraction will get infected. For that scenario, we need a plan B. <laughs> That's not the scenario we'd like to be in. We'd like to be able to suppress, contain, and keep most people from getting exposed. But if we fail, as seems likely, uh, what do we do then? Well, um, one thing we might try to do in general is instead of just letting everybody get infected at random in the random way in time that uh, they end up happening to get infected because uh, eventually we can't stop it, we could deliberately infect some people at certain times and places. A number of advantages of that. First, you can select who gets infected. That is, uh, if, say, we get herd immunity with maybe half the population infected, we could pick the half that's the least vulnerable, the young and healthy. Secondly, we could infect them when we know it happens so we can use our isolation resources well. That is, in general, when we're locking down and isolating, we're trying to keep the few people who are infectious from infecting others. But we don't know who that is, so we're locking down lots more people than the number of people who are actually at that moment infectious. When you deliberately infect someone, you know they are infected, and then they are infectious at that moment, and so you can concentrate your isolation resources on those people right then, and that's much more effective at keeping the disease from spreading. And third, you can uh, use the medical resources in the sense that you can deliberately infect people when the hospitals aren't overwhelmed and uh, spread it out over time so that you don't get it all bunched up at one time. So these are a number of advantages of deliberate infection, but they're actually relatively small compared to the next advantage, which is by deliberate infection, we can plausibly lower the death rate by a factor of 3 to 30, and also the rates of serious hospitalization, etc. And the key fact is that for most viruses, there is a dose effect. That is, when you get a larger dose of the virus at once at your initial exposure, then your body is less able to defend itself because um, the invading army is larger. Uh, when the dose is small, then your body can get a clue about it and then react better and stop it more easily, quickly. And so for a wide range of viruses, we see this dose effect where severe symptoms are much less severe, including death, uh, when you get a smaller dose. So we can deliberately infect with a small dose. And in addition, we can deliberately infect through the entry point in the body that's the most protected, as opposed to the most vulnerable, uh, such as the skin. Uh, and perhaps also additionally, we can control the strain, that is, which version of the virus, if there are some that are more uh, deadly than others. Now, this may all sound very hypothetical, but in fact, before we had vaccines, we had variolation. So, uh, in fact, in the U.S. Revolutionary War, initially, uh, we had troops in Canada, and they would have been part of the United States, except the troops there got uh, infected with smallpox and, and wiped out. And Washington at Valley Forge was very concerned that the other troops would also get attacked by smallpox. And defying the law of Continental Congress, he variolated the U.S. troops uh, secretly, had them infected deliberately with a small amount of the smallpox virus. And this, at that time, lowered the death rate from smallpox from 20 to 30 percent down to 1 to 2 percent. 
And that was a consistent result that we have. And that's what people did to deal with smallpox until we had uh, vaccinations. And not only with smallpox, but also with measles and SARS and other diseases, we've seen that initial dose can produce large factors uh, reduction in the death rate. So my proposal for plan B, i.e. if most everyone's going to get exposed, deliberately infect them with a small dose through the skin or some other better delivery vector uh, in order to drastically reduce the death rate. Uh, that's the key concept, and uh, I'll stop there, and we can go into sort of what are the obstacles and roadblocks and objections. Okay, well, I, so I do want to get, uh, I do want to talk about that, but I would, uh, I have a couple questions about more specifics. So first, um, how many people and how quickly would this need to happen in order to, to have a, a realistic effect on the course of the, the overall outbreak and you know how would it how would it work in practice I assume you're not I you know uh, I assume you're not proposing that you know people just randomly go out and, and lick right so, away randomly. so the control so, so first the scenario might be a, a hero hotel there's a place you go to and when you go through the doors uh, they immediately try to infect you with the low dose. And then they wait and see in isolation to see that you are infected. And then af soon after you are infected, now you can mix with other people in the hotel who came in with you, but none of you can leave the hotel until you recover. Uh, and we, have, of course, have all the medical resources available for you there. Uh, and, you know, that may take a few weeks. Uh, when does this need to happen? Uh, before you would have been accidentally infected or before someone else would have been accidentally infected. So that... Depends on how fast this goes. If we had been doing nothing to prevent this disease from spreading, then it may well have reached most everyone in a few months, and then the by then the opportunity to deliberately infect would be over. We are at the moment at great cost slowing this down, and there's the great question of how long we will try to keep this thing at bay. So uh, that could go on a long way, even though it would be at a great cost, but that also means there's a longer time such that we could deliberately infect people and have it make a difference. Okay, but it, o overall, in order for this strategy to work, you do need to get whatever the herd immunity rate of the population needs to be infected one way or the other. Well, which, well so this is for the plan B scenario where the assumption is most everyone's going to be infected. So you're right. not changing yeah. that outcome that most everyone's going to be infected. What you're changing is how many of them die and which one of them it is that's infected. So every young, healthy person that you deliberately infect is an improvement over the scenario where on average, random people get infected, including the old and infirm. But there's no threshold that you need to do enough to produce the outcome you're looking for. Every new person is one more benefit. Uh, well, yes, but... If it were, if you were only able to do this with a uh, hundred thousand people, say, then the overall effect on the course of the epidemic would be relatively small. Sure. So when, when the Titanic is sinking, the more boats you have, the better. But every boat helps. <laughs> so right, we could right. get into whether at some point we just want to let the people volunteer for it, and or whether we want to go past volunteering to encourage people, etc. 
But at the moment, we're not in that re regime. We're in the regime where we're not even allowed to do it. So my initial push is just allow people to do it and, and particularly allow us to do a small trial to show that it works. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so the initial idea would be do some small scale thing to show that, because there are a lot of things we don't know about the disease that, you know, you mentioned dose response. Right. That's so dose response isn't true for all viruses. It's true for, you know, three quarters at least, uh, but you'd want to check. Now, as you know, there's all these vaccine trials out there, many dozens. And so people say, you know, no one of them is we're very confident will work because vaccines are iffy and they're complicated. This is something we should try, but we are much more confident that this would work because we just very consistently have seen dose effects across a wide range of viruses. Well, I, so I don't, I, I know that the mayor of Las Vegas has made some sort of comments. I don't think specifically regarding your idea, but uh, very eager to try to find some way, some way beyond this. So I, so I, I don't know. I, th I think the, the stage people go in mind is they see like the status quo and they say, this is going to take a really long time. And yeah. what is, is the benefit really worth the cost? So a lot of people have gotten to that point in their thinking. They just go, it looks like we're not really reducing this. We're just holding it constant. We're sort of writing this blank check to do this forever. This looks terrible. What else have we got? And sometimes they're tempted to think of like Sweden, like let's just let the young and healthy people, you know, get more exposed and get past it. And that right. may not be crazy compared to the alternative, but in we could, if you think about it more, you might think, well, you know, maybe we could do even better. Right. What would need to change from the current legal and regulatory system for this to be allowed? Right. Do, do you know like what, like with the FDA or so we, we have a world of medical ethics regulation, which is done by these various committees. And it looks law-like in a sense that they make decisions, uh, but it's not law-like in the sense that they keep records <laughs> uh, or they have precedent. So, you know, with ordinary legal courts, uh, you know, you you sue someone and the court makes a decision and it writes down the decision and it explains the justification for the decision. And then other courts can read about the decision and use it as precedent. And the appeals courts could decide, well, your decision doesn't fit your justification very well, et cetera. But we have these other systems of making decisions like these medical ethics boards, and they don't have to write down a decision or give an explanation. And, and in fact, you're not allowed to know the the process even happened and the people involved are pressured never to tell anyone <laughs> and they don't, you can't go read precedents of other decisions and that sort of thing. So I know behind the scenes, people have asked for permission and been denied, but I can't report on it. I can't point to them and there is no precedent set. So the world of medical ethics is just a whole bunch of boards who make decisions, who have the power to decide these things and who have said no. And maybe among themselves, they have some concept of what decisions are made sometimes and on what basis, but there's no record of that. And there's no appeals court. There's just a bunch of boards that make decisions. Right. And they have said no. Okay. But so, I mean, hypothetically, suppose some, you know, hotel owner or somebody were to say, hey, I'm going to do this. Uh, you know, if people want to come, they can come and, you know, we're going to do this or whatever. What, right. What, who, who, who would who would stop them? Would the issue be 
Well, any medical- well, certainly if they wanted to be, you know, any associated with any sort of federal funding, then they would need the ethics boards. If they had association with any university or, or like that, they need the ethics boards. But if they had any professionals, like if they hired doctors to do this, mm-hmm. well, then the doctor medical ethics people would say, no, you haven't gotten our approval. And if they tried to do it without doctors, then people would say, well, you're doing medical treatment without a doctor and that's illegal. Right. The interaction with the medical system I guess is the the key obstacle, and that as long as the ethics boards say no, you can't do it, then right. If if a for profit company tries to do it, well, now they're selling a drug or selling a treatment, and now the FDA needs to regulate it, right? And so maybe you could do it as a non profit, you know, no money, no professionals. But then how do you do it? I mean, you know, you can see how you've been pushed into a corner, right? Right. Maybe they could use some of the uh, those cruise ships that are, you know, on international. Of course. Right. But then it's still the question as well, under what jurisdictions do those cruise ships run? And so it's it's not it's not impossible to imagine it happening. I'm just trying to let's describe the obstacle. So if somebody wants to do this in the face of this opposition, they do have to sort of move away from ordinary institutions and authorities and their support or uh, protection. Right. And, and of course, if the idea is to do a demonstration project so that it might be used on a wider scale. Then you want to have your name associated with it and publish it and tell people what you did and keep, you know, present the data, right? You know, so I'm not that optimistic about people just trying to do this on their own. Uh, The idea would be to do a demonstration where we could show how to do it and that it worked reasonably in the way we showed. So if this is an issue in the United States of too much regulation, is there anywhere in the world where this could be done that we could even learn from it to see if this would work even on sort of a small scale basis and an island or in a smaller populated country, anything along those lines? They could if they would. <laughs> but you might realize the world actually coordinates quite a lot in terms of medical opinion and medical and, and that sort of thing. So you know, noticed how the entire world switched to lockdown at roughly the same time all around the world. It's because, you know, the the people around the world, it's not because the world government makes them. It's because they are part of this larger community of opinion and they really want to be respected within that community. So the most respected places in the world uh, get a lot of deference from the rest. So somebody would have to be willing to go against that. So have you, have you thought, any, have you given any consideration of who that might be? I mean, Sweden obviously is already taking kind of its own course in the world. And then there are, uh, you know, Boris Johnson like has some advisors. So I'm not, a, I'm not a very good networker, but I know people who are. And so they have been trying to network with their contacts to try to get people in the world to try this. But so far they haven't succeeded. But of course, you know, it takes time. I think my best shot is to speak in public and to try to make uh, people publicly aware of this, and hopefully then they could do something. But public opinion is actually mostly irrelevant here in the sense that this is one of those areas of life where the professionals are in charge and they don't care what the public thinks. Well, I guess let me just as a follow up, there's 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 no reasonable self help remedy on something like this, like the uh, chicken pox parties or anything like this. This is it would be irresponsible for people without the type of care that you're that you've talked about in this hero uh, hotel and such, where they would just go and try to ex- expose themselves. And 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 based on the assumption that this is this is going to work, I can control the situation. You're not advocating for anything along those lines, right? 
I am not at the moment advocating, but I'll reserve the right to switch to that at some point <laughs> in the sense that it, it's not obvious it's that complicated, but I'm not that sure. And I would rather that some, you know, respected authorities were the people that you were listening to to do this. Uh, seems much better if that's how this plays out. Okay. Well, so let's let's talk a little bit about some of the objections. And, and one... Uh, and this is kind of a multifaceted objection that I'm going to that I'm going to you know put under the the category of you know our current ignorance right or uncertainty, and that is even at even at this point there's an awful lot we don't know about the virus and how it operates, uh, you know why it's it seems to be that uh, if you are a minor if you're under the age of you know certainly if you haven't gone through puberty, and then even after that, you are either immune uh, or you can be infected, but never show any symptoms. Right? We don't we don't really understand that, as far as I know. And then also, if you look at just the way that the virus has progressed in different countries, it seems to have hit uh, some places a lot harder and come on a lot quicker than other places. And there are all sorts of arguments about why that might be and whether there, you know, there might be relatively low cost strategies that could keep the virus contained, you know, maybe, maybe it's mask, maybe it's some sort of, uh, uh, you know, cultural, you know, maybe some cultures are just better at social distancing, other things like that. Um, so, so that's, that, that's one element of uncertainty. And then of course the other element is, uh, Doctors and medical people and uh, other folks are every day working on different plausible treatments that could either be preventative for infection uh, or could substantially reduce the death rate. You know, there's been, of course, a lot of focus on the idea of the vaccine, but even short of the vaccine, short of having a vaccine, there are you know, you could potentially come up with some sort of treatment that would. make it a lot less risky uh, or, or fatal to get the virus uh, or, you know, like there are serums or other, you know, potential options that, that are being worked on. So I guess one objection would be, you know, if you, if you were to do this uh, variolation strategy, especially if you were to try and do it on a low, uh, you know, wide scale quickly, uh, which would which you would want to do if you're try- you know if your goal is to try and uh, reduce the economic cost and other things from dragging this out, then you know you're kind of uh, you're kind of putting all your chips into the pot before you before you have enough information about what the cards are on the table, and you could find that well actually if we had just waited a little bit longer, uh, we could have had a much much better scenario right. Right. So I think this all comes down to the plan A versus plan B part, (laughs) right? If we think plan A is pretty likely to work soon and work well, then we don't need to go pull the trigger on a plan B. But that would be different than preparing a plan B. So uh, my first recommendation is to prepare a plan B to get it ready if you need it. So on plan A, obviously, um, if we found some much more effective treatments or much more effective ways to suppress, 
uh, then that would make plan A easier. And uh, people are certainly intrigued by the fact we see enormous variation around the world in terms of which places have suppressed more effectively. And so in the places like here in the US where we're not doing such a good job, many people say, well, we should keep trying because look at those other places, it's worked well there. And you know, the big question is, yeah, it's worked well there, but is that because you know, they started early or they are having a different policy? And what's the process we're actually going to change how we do things here anytime soon? So, you know, if you said, you know, we're going to take the package of policies South Korea did, and we're just going to adopt those exactly here as best we can, or even the package that they tried in Wuhan or something like that. I could, you know, get behind that. I'd say, well, you're taking a package that worked and you're going to apply it here. Maybe some other context change that won't make it work, but at least you have a decent shot if you take a whole package. But that's not what we're doing. You know, every place is sort of inventing their own different approach and they're kind of sticking with it. And we've got a lot of white papers and proposals about how we ought to do things radically different, but there doesn't seem to be much movement toward any one of them. And so it looks like we're kind of doing the same thing here and we're going to keep doing the same thing here for a while. I mean, that's how I read it. And certainly in terms of vaccines and things like that, the people working that aren't promising that that's going to show up soon, or even we're going to get big information on that soon. So it seems to me we're, we're, we know basically that plan A isn't working so well and it's costing a lot and, you know, we should get ready with a plan B. Now, if you think in plan B, what does uncertainty cost you? You'd say, well, look, we don't know enough to, to pick this plan B strategy. Well, the question is, what other plan B strategies do you have on the table? I mean, there really isn't much else on the table uh, as a plan B strategy if most people are going to be infected. And there's uncertainty in how bad this disease will be. You know, we don't know the infection fatality rate or how much, you know, when people are recovered, how much damage they've suffered or even how long they're immune. But all of those uncertainties, um, you know, the worse it is, the more attractive it should then be to cut the damage rate by variolation. So, you know, if it turned out that we were only immune for a year and then we all got sick again, well, that would make it all the more important that when we get sick every year, it'd be a less damaging version. So if, if this is a less damaging disease, then all the consequences are less, but then the deliberate infection would also be less. So I don't really see how most of the uncertainties affect choice of variolation versus accidental infection if we're in a plan B scenario. I get that if you're not sure whether you need plan B, then you want to keep pursuing plan A, but at least get plan B ready. It doesn't happen instantly. It takes some time to set up and be ready to do it. And then if you need it, you'd have it. So uh, so first, I'm assuming that, you know, what you're contemplating is a kind of voluntary system where, you know, if people want to do it, they can, but no, it's not like you're going to force people to be uh, deliberately infected in this way. And so I guess the question is, would you put any criteria on where, you know, if someone, if someone comes in and says, yeah, I'd like to try this, but, uh, you know, they're overweight uh, or they have hypertension or maybe they're 62, you know, uh, would, would the idea be, well, you know, if you, if you feel that this is a good, uh, a safe, informed choice for you, you can do it. Or would you say, no, no, no. The point is to focus on lower risk folks, and and you know if so, how do you how do you determine who they they are? So as an economist, I would try to identify the externalities, and that would be the basis on which I might 
focus on limiting people's choices or taxing or subsidizing them. But the first cut here is variolation would cut your death rate and risk of harm and more quickly let you get back to work and socializing. So that seems sufficient incentive to entice a lot of people, certainly after the initial trials show that it works. Uh, so I'm not sure I see the externalities after that that would make me want to limit or direct people's choices. But, you know, I'm open to being convinced of that. Uh, every person who walks in and comes out adds one more unit to our herd immunity. So in terms of that externality, I don't see a reason to distinguish people. Um, if, you know, people who are more vulnerable would get more sick while they're in the hotel and therefore, you know, cause a worst experience for the other people in the hotel, I could imagine maybe segregating the hotels and having the young hotel and the old hotel. Uh, but I'm still not at the moment seeing the externality that would make me want to uh, distinguish them. So we put off for a while kind of the, the ethical issue here. You know, we mentioned the ethical, the ethics boards, we, you know, we're kind of... Right. And there has been, you know, certainly it, back at Valley Forge, uh, you know, when uh, George Washington, you know, father of the country, uh, first president or whatever was, was, was doing his unauthorized medical experiments. Uh, you know, the, 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 the body of, of medical ethics had not developed to the point that it has now, but certainly, you know, if you look at the post-World War II period, uh, put down a lot of, you know, et, like very strong ethical prohibitions on what you can and can't do. But actually things haven't changed as much as people pretend. Okay. <laughs> so, so the objections people had to variolation back in the 1700s weren't that different than people's objections today. And uh, you might have heard, like, you know, after World War II, experiments of the Nazis made us produce medical ethics. But, you know, actually, the Nazis were in Germany under similar sort of medical ethics rules to the ones we have today. Uh, I don't actually think the, the overall attitudes or rules have changed that much over the years. Uh, that's the more surprising thing. Well, certainly the institutions have changed, at least, right? The, the details of the institutions have changed. Yeah. But uh, you know, the reason why it was illegal... <laughs> in George Washington's day was a lot of people just said, ew, you right. know, how dare you deliberately infect people and deliberately cause people to get sick. Um, even if they're much less sick than they would have been accidentally, people just thought that was ethically objectionable then. And they still do now. That's half, at least half the objections I've heard people raise, even among doctors are that principle. No, we never deliberately hurt people. But, you know, that's our principle. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you were talking about externalities, uh, a minute ago, it does seem to me that uh, if you were to allow just, you know, uh, researchers to deliberately infect people generally, I think that there could be some externality issues. Uh, well, a lot depends on whether they're volunteers. So certainly some of the worst cases in history were cases where people did not volunteer for the treatment they got. Right. And, you know, that's far more objectionable, uh, you know, including soldiers and, uh, you know, people in towns that got secretly infected. Uh, but, you know, th there's been this principle in medical ethics experiments that the people who volunteer have to personally benefit in health terms from an experiment. It's not enough just to pay them and have them benefit in other ways. And it's not enough that society might benefit, that they personally must benefit in health terms, or at least expect to, which is a pretty high standard. And of course, it's not the standard we apply to soldiers who go off to war. We don't say you can't let a soldier volunteer for war unless they're going to be benefit personally from the war. Right. developing job skills or something like that. In many areas of life, we allow people to take risks 
and pay them to take those risks to uh, protect the rest of us. Yeah. So l- let me ask, and I have heard an e- explanation of this and uh, I- I'm not part of my brain still can't quite process it, but you know, the, when I, when I heard about uh, this, I, you know, some of the discussions around this idea and then also the so-called human challenge trials uh, you know, for vaccine development. I, so I had the question, well, you know, whenever you develop a vaccine, at some point you have to test it on on humans to see that it is uh, effective at least and and what other side effects might be and uh, apparently do you i mean do you know how they do that with most vaccines yeah the usual situation is you give people the vaccines and then you wait for them to be accidentally infected right so that means you have to give the vaccine to a lot of people because only a small fraction will get accidentally infected and right. so you don't deliberately infect them usually. And the human challenge trial proposal is to deliberately infect them. And as you may notice, we've had a lot of op-eds and people talking about that, but I haven't heard of any act- trials being actually approved over the last few months. Uh, of the deliberately infecting people? Yes. Yeah. Right, the, the human challenge trial. So in fact, some of the human challenge trials would actually do the kind of dose experiments I would like in the process of doing the human challenge trials. So I very much would like those trials to go forward. But again, they have so far been denied right well i i i don't i mean uh, i don't believe are any of the vaccine candidates ready for that stage anyway or i think so yes there might be one out of in the out of not the- so many yeah and more more will be coming but yes but but of course you know it takes time to set this up so you you do kind of want to get approval before the day you start <laughs> right yeah and it does and uh, so i'm a i'm a lawyer by training and uh, one of the advantages of being a lawyer is that you don't really need to know much math. But uh, if you were to, if you're trying to test the uh, effectiveness of a vaccine by just waiting for people to accidentally get infected, uh, you have to wait longer, and you need more people. It's more expensive. Yes, yeah. and and more people will have to potentially be exposed to the infection in order for you to be able to tell what happened, right? Uh, A bit more, not not that much more, but it's it's more random. You you can't be sure who's going to get infected or when. It it certainly would have to be at least as many. uh, Otherwise, you would not be able. Right. But it's going to be in this bigger pool. You're going to give a lot of people the vaccine and then you you might give 10,000 people the vaccine and 100 of them get the disease. And then you see that as opposed to deliberately infecting 100 in the first place. Right. Okay. Well, so that there's some peculiarities there, I guess, although I, I can understand the reticence of people to. Well, again, they're volunteers. And so, you know, we let people voluntarily skydive, climb Mount Everest, um, join the military. Right. Uh, And so part of, part of the ethics response is to say, well, it's not ethical to give people a experimental treatment when you can't give them informed consent. Well, they've interpreted informed consent not as tell them everything we know. It means tell them enough so that they can be pretty sure what will happen. <laughs> that is, uh, as long as there's a lot of uncertainty in the treatment, then it can't be informed consent. So many people have, have interpreted that constraint that way, which pretty means like you don't have informed consent to get married. You don't have informed consent to get a job or to, to immigrate to a new country because you usually don't know that much about the consequences of those choices. Right. So, and this, just to circle back to uh, 
an earlier point when I was talking about would it make a difference, you know, if you're only able to do this for 100,000 people or whatnot, would it, you know, would it make a difference? Uh, and because I, I think that w one way to think about these ethical issues is they're kind of like a fixed cost is that you have, you know, in order to go through with it, you would have to kind of break a societal taboo on. Uh, okay. But my, here's my bigger argument was to say the biggest payoffs we're going to get out of this pandemic is preparing us for the next one. Okay. Yeah. This is actually relatively mild as a pandemic. Right. <laughs> it's surprising and highly infectious, but its death rate is actually pretty low, but right. we may not be so lucky the next time. Right. So That's this fun. should, we should set up our procedures and, and norms and morals and, and rules and attitudes and expectations in this pandemic to be ready for the next one. As you've talked to people about this, have you found that a lot of people are like, this sounds like a great idea. Sign me up. I want, I want to know where I can go do this or. <laughs> well, certainly a lot of people have reacted that way, but of course these are ordinary people, not doctors or medical ethicists. <laughs> <laughs> and they, you know, they ordinary people don't count here really. Again, in the, well, the process we've set up doesn't li listen to their input. Yeah. So, um, I guess, I guess, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it does seem like a lot of countries are kind of on autopilot in terms of what their response is. They seem kind of, they, they seem kind of. They're, they're really conformist or herd, herd following. That is, you know, even India, which is vastly poorer than the U.S., sort of did a lockdown like the U.S., and, you know, their people are much less able to handle being locked down for that long in terms of having food and, and supplies and things like that. But there was just this idea that every, all the countries in the world would follow the sort of international lead and go along with the international story out of, you know, the, the deference. Basically, people are afraid of doing something different for being blamed for being different, especially if there things go wrong. Yeah, I, I think India's lockdown was even stricter than at least it is. parts of the United States. Uh, uh, they, and nevertheless, their rates are, their cases are growing. Uh, yeah, well, I haven't checked. I haven't checked the Indian numbers, but um, uh, it's actually a little surprising that it's not worse there, although there's all sorts of confounding uh, variables, I suppose. I mean, the best thing for them is their population is much younger, so uh, right. they will escape in that, by that. Yes, right. Well, so I, I guess, I guess, uh, I, I guess my, my question then is, um, you know, given, given the kind of, uh, conformist, uh, nature of most of these governments and, and whatnot, what, what, why, like, what is the, what is the value then proposals like this? If it's basically, if the idea as well is, you know, they're probably not going to listen because, uh, the arguments don't really count as so this is the nature of innovation. <laughs> our society today innovates much better than our, than our ancestors did centuries ago or thousands of years ago. You know, uh, the process of innovation wasn't that different. Uh, but, you know, thousands of years ago, the economy doubled roughly every thousand years. And now it doubles every 15 years. And that's mainly because we innovate a lot more now. And 100,000 years ago, 500,000 years ago, we innovated even slower uh, but we are not near the maximum feasible rate of innovation. If you look at the details of innovations that happen in our world, it is a lot of this random sort of process. 
people throw out an idea and they search around for someone to be willing to try it. And mostly people aren't that eager to try new ideas, even when it would be socially valuable. Um, mostly you have to search until you get someone willing to try something and then you do small trials and when small trials work well, you do bigger trials. And that's just the nature of innovation everywhere in our society and all the different regimes. Even when regulation doesn't stand in the way, you still have to search around for someone willing to try something. And so if you, if you insisted that the first people who heard your proposal say yes, otherwise you're going to not make proposals, you're just going to have to quit the innovation game. That's the nature of innovation in our world. You have to just get, try and get a lot of people to listen, to hope that some will um, be persuaded enough to give it a try. I've done a lot of innovation, a lot of other areas of my uh, life and, and research. And in many areas, regulation is a substantial barrier. But even when regulation is not the barrier, uh, there are enormous, you know, not invented here barriers, for example. People don't want to try things they didn't invent. They're much more eager to try an idea that's theirs than somebody else's. Well, so our guest today has been uh, Robin Hansen. Uh, Robin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Irving Cowboys.